Good morning. Today's scripture comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. And it's printed in your bulletin on page 6 if you'd like to follow along. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you curse, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thank you, Jessica. All right. Let's say a word of prayer as we look at this together. God, we are asking for your help because we need your help to receive your word, not just to hear it, not just to hear it, but to receive it and to bear the fruit of obedience, to conform our lives to what you are telling us today. It's a supernatural thing. We need your grace. And so we pray that you would come for your glory, for our good and for the good of of our neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are a neighborhood church. We're a neighborhood church, which means that we want our church to become a reflection of the neighborhood. It's our desire. It's our prayer. That by God's grace, over time and through sacrificial intentionality of love, that we would become a reflection of the neighborhood. And that means a lot of things, but it at least means this, that we would grow together with a neighborhood that is comprised of neighbors that are, in fact, professional class, middle class, working class, and poor. And so we're committed to being a church that has vibrant ministries of compassion and justice for the poor, 
ministries of community development. And, and by that, what we mean isn't just ministry of resources, but ministries of relationship. Not just ministries of community service, but a ministry of community. In short, our prayer, our dream here at Grace Meridian Hill, again, among other various aspects of vision that we hold dear, is to become an economically mixed church. To be an economically reconciled and integrated, a weaved together family of faith growing together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we would love to invite all of you to be a part of this growing process. And so, in this current year, we've made growing in this specific area of ministry. You might call it mercy and justice ministry. The focus of this year trying to take intentional steps and in growing in our outreach and our inreach of our care of one another's physical and material needs of our ingathering of people of a whole range of economic backgrounds. I've seen more and more of the vibrancy and diversity of our neighbors' lives reflected here in community, believing that that's part of God's design, that that is what the kingdom is meant to be comprised of, such neighbors as these, as you. This is our focus for this year, mercy and justice. And so for the next six weeks, we'll be starting a a new sermon series starting today on this aspect of life and ministry. We're calling it Friendship in the Margins, and we'll unpack that over the next couple of weeks. Kicking off, of course, today with this passage, a well-known passage from Matthew 25. Jesus, towards the end of his ministry, is giving some teaching, giving a picture to his disciples of what the day of judgment is going to look like. What is it going to be like in the future when Christ returns and gathers all of humanity together? What matters to him and therefore what should matter to us? And as you heard, as it was read a couple seconds ago, or if you're familiar with the passage, you know that Jesus offers a stunning description of this future day of judgment where the whole human race is brought before him He's the judge and the king of all people. He's seated on his throne. And back in the ancient world, they would have been much more familiar with sheep and goats than we are. It was well known at that time that they often had to be separated. Sheep were pretty good, pretty durable, could handle any kind of weather. Goats were more like from Florida, right? They didn't like the cold. And so needed to be brought in, to be huddled together when the night got cold. They would be separated and divided. Jesus plays off of this well-known image to say the king will one day separate some people from others. Those who are right with God and and those who are not. Those who would be rewarded and those who would be condemned. And the difference between the two groups was simply this. He says, you were all confronted with the opportunity. You were all confronted with the opportunity to care for those in need. 
and some of you cared, and some of you didn't. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, or in other words, an immigrant or refugee, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited or cared for me. I was in prison, and you came to me. I was broke, and you helped me pay rent. I didn't know English, and you taught me. I was down, and you lifted me up. I was downtrodden, and you exalted me and restored my human dignity. Jesus says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Whereas you didn't do it to them, you didn't do it to me. And here we learn a couple things, and we'll just pull out three observations from this passage. We'll learn about it together, we'll apply it, and then we'll talk about it afterwards in our Q&A time. First thing we notice, point number one, it's personal. It's personal for Jesus. You know, one of the striking things about this passage is the way that Jesus says he takes the physical hardship of people deeply personally. He says about the hungry and thirsty and needy that if you care for them, you've cared for me. Last Friday at the Columbia Heights Rec Center, there was a wonderful event called the Gospel Explosion Variety Show. I don't know how many of you were there, a local community event, singing and dancing. Some members of our community offering a poem, a praise dance, a song. One of the joys for me, though, in addition to enjoying all the different acts, was seeing Elena cared for most of the time, not by me, but of other members of our community. Most especially, special thanks going out to Dayana, who is nine, uh, pretty much had Elena in her lap the entire time. Uh, Gave me the ability to, sure, watch them, but also care for others, talk with others, get to know others. And it was just so encouraging to me, and it made me think of this idea of this little one, my daughter, who is, you might say, made in my image, that I couldn't help but to feel cared for myself. You see, you care for my daughter, you care for me. It's personal for me as well. Just like I, as a parent, take it personally, The Bible tells us that God feels the same about those who are made in his image. Every human being, no matter how high or how low, including, of course, the hungry and thirsty and naked, those who are made in God's image. For him, their care, their justice, it's personal. But more than that, going one step further, notice how Jesus refers to these dear suffering people in verse 40. He says, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. You know, all throughout the book of Matthew, when Jesus uses the language of brothers and sisters, he's always talking about his followers. Those who have embraced him as savior and as king. Those who are in his family of faith. You see, because the Bible tells us that if you embrace Jesus as your source of salvation, 
you become spiritually united with him. That means everything that's yours now counts as his, and everything that's his now counts as yours, such that on the cross, your sin counted as his, and his death counted as yours, and that's how your sins are forgiven. Because you're united to him. Being united to Jesus also means that he continues to live in you. And now he says, whatever happens to you, happens to me. Whatever hardship, whatever sorrow, can you imagine? Whatever brokenness of life, financial struggle or emotional struggle... Whatever it is that you are experiencing, Jesus says it's happening to me. Who's a God like that? And so today, if you're someone who is struggling with a physical or material need, and you're someone that has put your trust in Jesus, do you realize today that he takes your struggle personally? Are you hungry this morning? Jesus says, then I'm hungry. It's personal. Can't make rent? Jesus says, then I'm broke too. Because it's personal. Battling cancer. Jesus says, so am I. Because it's personal. Someone ignores you when you ask for help. Jesus says, that person just ignored me. Because it's personal. Struggling friend, neighbor, do you know that you have a king of unending compassion who struggles with you, with you, And in you, who left his throne in heaven, who made himself poor, died for your salvation, united himself to you, and continues to identify with everything you endure, you are never alone. This is your Savior. And if you're someone today who's seeking to care for someone in need, Do you realize that if this is true, then it means that the reason that we serve and care and lay down our lives for other people is not only compassion for the poor and the oppressed. It's also simply love for your God. Because all your service to neighbor is, in fact, service to Jesus. All your loving is love to Jesus. He stands behind, no, he stands in the life of your neighbor in need, those who have embraced him as Savior. Which means, of course, then... You don't need to wait for a feeling of love for a neighbor in order to start serving. If you already love your Savior. 
You don't have to know everything about them, though you want to get to know them and care for them. Because even if my personal compassion runs out or my personal affection for this individual is short, you have enough reason to care and to lay down your life because you can do it for Jesus' sake because he said, you're doing it unto me. It's personal. It's personal. But secondly, it's a priority. It's a priority. The heart of this passage, the heart of this passage is simply this. Serving the poor won't get you into heaven. But you won't be in heaven if you never serve the poor. Now that's provocative, isn't it? Serving the poor won't get you into heaven. It's not your ticket into heaven. It's not your way to earn your way into heaven, to bribe God to let you into heaven. But you won't be in heaven unless you serve the poor. If you join us downstairs in a few minutes for refreshments, you'll get a chance to enjoy not only a massive cake. I hope you eat a lot of it. I'm... Paula commissioned me to make sure you know to eat a lot of cake because we're going to have a lot of leftovers and we don't want it to come to my house. So I'm eating cake all week long. We're also going to have watermelon. Enjoy some watermelon together. It reminds me of one of my favorite childhood memories. Well, I don't know if it's a favorite. It's kind of funky. But as a kid, as I was enjoying watermelon one summer, surrounded by family members, some of whom wanted to poke fun at me and kind of play with me a little bit. Remember when I finally started understanding that you don't eat the seeds. Take big bites, enjoy the watermelon, let it dribble down your face, but you don't eat the seeds. And maybe I just started understanding what seeds were and how seeds worked and you plant seeds and they grow. One of my dad's friends looked up at me or maybe it was my dad's, probably my dad. As I told him, Dad, what do I do? Daddy, what do I do? I ate a bunch of seeds, a bunch of watermelon seeds. He said, well, you better be careful because watermelon's going to grow in your tummy now. And I just burst into tears crying. It's traumatic. Still getting over it. But you see, I knew something that was true. Didn't apply it right, but I knew something that was true. Watermelon seeds produce watermelons. And watermelons are big and heavy. Cherry seeds produce cherries. If I had swallowed some of them, I would have known I might be all right. But you see, I understood and you understand a seed produces fruit of its kind. And this is what the Bible tells us, that when the seed of salvation in Jesus is planted in your life, It ought to produce the fruit of salvation in your life. The fruit of mercy, if you have received mercy from God. The fruit of sacrificial service, if you have indeed received the sacrificial service of Jesus on the cross on your behalf. The fruit of gentleness and compassion, if in fact you have received the compassion of your heavenly Father. 
You see, it ought to change your life. If you eat a watermelon seed in your soul, it should produce watermelon. And on the day of judgment, Jesus tells us, God won't need to give you a theology exam. Your life will be the exam. He's not saying it doesn't matter what you believe or if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. He's saying you'll know it. You'll know you have a relationship with the suffering servant if you too are signed up to be a suffering servant as well. Your relationships will be the proof of the genuineness of your faith, which is what the New Testament says again and again and again. James 2, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, true faith bears the fruit of practical love. First John chapter three, we know that we have passed from death to life. How? Because we love our brothers. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. And of course, even in this moment, if all you're feeling is the sense of guilt, or if that's the only thing that's motivating you, don't you understand even motivations of guilt are a self-serving, self-centered motive of the heart? That's not what this passage is trying to do to scare you into love of neighbor. No, not at all. It's out of the overflow of joy and gratitude for all that God has been for you. That it should turn inside out all the energies of your life that once were pointed inward at me, which is the essence of the sin that leads us to condemnation and now takes us and points it outward and upward in worship to Jesus and love of those in need. Because how you help others says a lot about whether you believe you needed help from God. Where we come to the point of saying, I'm needy too. And God became my provider. I'm helpless too. And God became my helper. God became the lover of my body and soul. God became my servant through Jesus. So how can I help? How can I provide? How can I meet needs? How can I serve? Sign me up. The joy of the gospel that gets us to raise our hands ready to love. And so are you ready to love? Serving a neighbor in need. Maybe even spending this week praying, God, give me eyes to notice real people around me and give me energy and creativity to know how to care, love, walk alongside, meet tangible needs. We want to enter a season this summer and going into the fall as we focus on this theme of mercy and justice of inviting you
to creatively engage who you are, who we are as a community, and who our neighbors are. That we might be able to come up with one or two or three new ways that we can collectively care for our neighbors. God's given us a lot of wonderful progress and help in the area of youth ministry and outreach. A joy to see flourishing at this point, praise God. But we'd love to see more. Is it the ministry of connecting with those who are refugees or immigrants and perhaps loving them by instructing them in English? Is it feeding the hungry? Is it caring for those that lack housing? Is it using skills in order to lift people up in the job search process, maybe even job training process? Is it family? Is it home? Is it finances? Is it food? Is it illness, physical, mental, or otherwise? What is it? How can God be calling us to care and to love? And someone here might be saying, you know, but I don't have much. I don't have a lot to give. Because on most days, I see myself in the list of people that Jesus just mentioned here. Hungry and needy and lacking. Clinging to God by faith. I want you to understand that there's a place for you as well. Especially if you are connected to God through Jesus. You notice Jesus said, I was in prison and you came to me. What did it cost a person to visit a brother or sister in prison? It wasn't having a lot of stuff. Maybe the cost of time, the cost of convenience, the cost of love. According to Jesus, you don't got to be rich to love another neighbor in need. Even if you say, I don't got much to give, you still have incredible ways That you can serve somebody, care for somebody, because you are blessed by God. You have a God-given personality. Some of you can laugh the roof off this building. And you need to extend this gift of laughter to lift someone up. To cheer someone up. Some of you have a gift of conversation, just being able to talk it up with another person. Lift someone up in their loneliness. You have God-given talents and abilities, maybe to fix things for another person or to cook a meal or to teach a kid how to ride a bike, a kid that has no one else to care for them and walk with them. You have a lot to give and a lot of ways to serve. And sometimes even to serve someone that you think has more than you, someone you might even consider rich, God has given you that much. That much to give. It's a priority, folks. Not an extracurricular activity. This is Christianity 101. The overflow of joy. The overflow of God's generosity into our life and over out into the lives of those in need. It's personal. It's a priority. And lastly... And briefly, it's a church thing. It doesn't rhyme or alliterate, does it? Believe me, I was looking up some P words. I couldn't find any. 
You don't know what preachers do, burning up all our time, what we're really working on. Just eat it. It's a church thing. Now you won't forget it. Listen, this is going to be brief. One of the massive implications of this passage, you can almost miss it, is that every Christian should be in relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ who are poor. Brothers and sisters in Christ whom they have opportunity to serve. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't put it so starkly like this, would he? If you're familiar with this passage, I don't know if you've noticed, maybe when we were reading it, maybe you thought it yourself, most middle-class Christians today in this country read this passage as a general call to care for the needy, community service. I think because most of us aren't even in churches where we could even live this out, Because our churches tend to be so economically segregated that you're not in relationship with a brother and sister in physical and material need. Where the reality is the only way some Christian communities can live out this passage is by going outside their gatherings of worship in order to love the poor. You see this implication, and we'll explore this subject further in a few weeks. I'll only touch on it here briefly. At the modern American church here, we've accepted economic segregation of society as being the norm within the life of the church. And it's not how Jesus meant it to be. We reflect this in our worshiping communities, not realizing how worldly it really is. Our churches are economically segregated. Our Sunday services are segregated. And so the middle class American church can only conceive of ministry to the poor, to the oppressed, and to the alien as outreach. When in the first century church, as we see it in the book of Acts, the church was so economically blended, this ministry was called in-reach. We call it community service. They called it the church. We call it radical living. They called it Christianity. As we see in Acts 2 and Acts 4, words like these, that all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Which, of course, means that they were a church with both those who had great needs and those who had Great resources. And together, they were a body and a family. And you say, well, but what if we don't have anyone who's clothed less or hunger less or degree less, food less, home less, resources less or tutoring less or English proficiency less? What do we do? 
then we go love them into the community. We go draw people in as part of our obedience to a passage like this. To believe what Jesus says when he says, you'll be more blessed when you live in holy diversity. All walks of life, people with their eyes and hearts engaged with the gospel of Jesus, living in community and fellowship together because we all mutually have a lot to learn from one another. We need each other. And this neighborhood needs Jesus. It's a church thing. Not just a nonprofit thing. Not a government thing. Not an outside-the-doors thing. But in the community. A sharing community. A community of justice. A community of neighbors. Can we, over the next several weeks, grow in this vision of what it might look like for us to grow in this way? And maybe even to take a few steps concretely in the direction of maturing as a church and as individuals. Becoming neighbors, radically generous, as God has been generous to us. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would come and that you would now pour into our hearts deep convictions of your lavish love and the power of your blood so that in turn, love and service might lavishly pour out of our lives into the lives of those around us. And that we would do this as an act of worship and love for you. We do it to you. In Christ's name, amen. 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 Let's stand and let's sing. Let's sing it into our hearts.